Chapter 2 of A Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy by Karl Marx. Translated by Nahum Isaac Stone. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Traven Leroy, Ottawa, Canada. Chapter 2, Section C. Theories of the Medium of Circulation and of Money. Part 2. With what violence to actual facts Ricardo has to explain them in the sense of his absent theory, a few illustrations will suffice to show. He maintains, for example, that in years of poor crops, which happened frequently in England during 1800 to 1820, gold is exported not because corn is needed, and gold as money is at all times an effectual means of purchase in the world market, but because gold is in such cases depreciated in its value as compared with other commodities and, therefore, the currency of the country in which there has been a failure of crops is depreciated with respect to other national currencies. Quote, in consequence of a bad harvest, a country having been deprived of a part of its commodities, the currency which was before its just level, becomes redundant, end quote and prices of all commodities rise in consequence. Footnote, Ricardo, L.C., page 74 to 75. Quote, England, in consequence of a bad harvest, would come under the case of a country having been deprived of a part of its commodities, and therefore requiring a diminished amount of circulating medium. The currency which was before equal to her payments would now become superabundant and relatively cheap. In proportion of her diminished production, the exportation of the sum, therefore, would restore the value of her currency to the value of the currencies of other countries. End quote. His confusion of money and commodity, and of money and coin, borders on the ludicrous in the following passage. Quote, if we can suppose that after an unfavorable harvest, when England has occasion for an unusual importation of corn, Another nation is possessed of a superabundance of that article, but has no wants for any commodity whatever. It would unquestionably follow that such nation would not export its corn in exchange for commodities, but neither would export corn for money, as that it is a commodity which no nation ever wants absolutely, but relatively. End quote. LC, page 75. Pushkin in his hero poem makes the father of his hero incapable of comprehending that commodities are money, but that money is a commodity. The Russians have understood from times of yore, as is proven not only by the English corn imports in 1838 to 1842, but by the entire history of their commerce. End of footnote. Contrary to this paradoxical interpretation, it has been proven statistically that from 1793 to the present time, whenever England had a bad harvest, the available supply of currency not only did not become superabundant, but became inadequate, and that, therefore, more money circulated and had to circulate on such occasions. Footnote. Conf Thomas Took, History of Prices, and James Wilson, Capital, Currency, and Banking. The latter work is a reprint of a series of articles which appeared in the London Economist in 1844, 1845, and 1847. End of footnote. In the same manner Ricardo maintained, with reference to Napoleon's continental system and the English blockade decree, that the English exported gold instead of commodities to the continent, because their money was depreciated with respect to the money on the continent, that their commodities were, therefore, more high-priced, 
which made it a more profitable commercial speculation to export gold than goods. According to him, England was a market in which commodities were dear and money was cheap, while on the continent, commodities were cheap and money was dear. The trouble, according to an English writer, was, quote, the ruinously low prices of our manufacturers and of our colonial productions under the operation of the continental system during the last six years of the war. The prices of sugar and coffee, for instance, on the continent, computed in gold, were four or five times higher than their prices in England, computed in banknotes. I am speaking of the times in which the French chemists discovered sugar in beetroot and a substitute for coffee in chicory. And when the English grazier tried experiments upon fattening oxen with treacle and molasses, of the times when we took possession of the island of Heligoland in order to transform there a depot of goods to facilitate, if possible, the smuggling of them into the north of Europe, and when the lighter descriptions of British manufacturers found their way into Germany through Turkey, almost all the merchandise of the world accumulated in our warehouses, where they became impounded except when some small quantity was released by a French license, for which the merchants at Hamburg and Amsterdam had, perhaps, given Napoleon such a sum as forty or fifty thousand pounds. They must have been strange merchants, to have paid so large a sum for liberty to carry a cargo of goods from a dear market to a cheap one. What was the ostensible alternative the merchant had? Either to buy coffee at sixpence, a pound in banknotes, and send it to a place where it would instantly sell at three shilling or four shilling a pound in gold, or to buy gold with a banknote at five pounds an ounce, and send it to a place where it would be received at three pounds, 17 shilling, 10 and a half pence an ounce. It is too absurd, of course, to say that the gold was remitted instead of the coffee as a preferable mercantile operation. There was not a country in the world in which so large a quantity of desirable goods could be obtained in return for an ounce of gold as in England. Bonaparte was constantly examining the English price current. So long as he saw that gold was dear and coffee was cheap in England, he was satisfied that his continental system worked well. End quote. Footnote. James Deacon Hume, Letters on the Corn Laws, London, 1834, page 29 to 31. Letter by H.B.T. on the Corn Laws and on the Rights of the Working Classes. Translation. End of footnote. At the very time when Ricardo first formulated his theory of money, and the bullying committee embodied it in its parliamentary report, namely in 1810, a ruinous fall of prices of all English commodities as compared with those of 1808 and 1809 took place, while gold rose in value accordingly. Only agricultural products formed an exception, because their importation from abroad met with obstacles and their domestic supply was decimated by unfavorable crop conditions. Footnote. Thomas Took, History of Prices, etc., London, 1848, page 110. End of footnote. Ricardo so utterly failed to comprehend the role of precious metals as an international means of payment that in his testimony before the Committee of the House of Lords in 1819, he could say, quote, that drains for exportation would cease altogether so soon as cash payments should be resumed and the currency be restored to its metallic level, end quote. He died just in time on the very eve of the crisis of 1825, which belied his prophecies. 
the time when Ricardo wrote was generally little adapted for the observation of the function of precious metals as world money. Before the introduction of the continental system, the balance of trade had almost always been in favour of England, and while that system lasted, the commercial intercourse with the European continent was too insignificant to affect the English rate of exchange. The money transmissions were mostly of a political nature, and Ricardo seems to have utterly failed to grasp the part which subsidy payments played at the time in English gold exports. Footnote. Conf. W. Blake's Above Quoted, Observations, etc. End of footnote. Among the contemporaries of Ricardo who formed the school which adopted his economic principles, James Mill was the most important one. He attempted to work out Ricardo's theory of money on the basis of simple metallic circulation without the irrelevant international complications which served Ricardo to hide the inadequacy of his theory and without any controversial regard for the operations of the Bank of England. His main arguments are as follows. Quote, By value of money is here to be understood the proportion in which it exchanges for other commodities or the quantity of it which exchanges for a certain quantity of other things. It is the total quantity of the money in any country which determines what portion of that quantity shall exchange for a certain portion of the goods or commodities of that country. If we suppose that all the goods of the country are on one side, all the money on the other, and that they are exchanged at once against one another, it is evident that the value of money would depend wholly upon the quantity of it. It will appear that the case is precisely the same in the actual state of the facts. The whole of the goods of a country are not exchanged at once against the whole of the money. The goods are exchanged in portions, often in very small portions and at different times, during the course of the whole year. The same piece of money which is paid in one exchange today may be paid in another exchange tomorrow, some of the pieces will be employed in a great many exchanges, some in very few, and some, which happen to be hoarded, in none at all. There will, amid all these varieties, be a certain average number of exchanges, the same which, if all the pieces had performed an equal number, would have been performed by each. That average we may suppose to be any number we please, say, for example, ten. If each of the pieces of the money in the country perform ten purchases, that is exactly the same thing as if all the pieces were multiplied by ten, and performed only one purchase each. The value of all the goods in the country is equal to ten times the value of all the money. If the quantity of money, instead of performing ten exchanges in a year, were ten times as great and performed only one exchange in the year, it is evident that whatever addition were made to the whole quantity would produce a proportional diminution of value in each of the minor quantities taken separately. As the quantity of goods against which the money is all exchanged at once is supposed to be the same, the value of all the money is no more, after the quantity is augmented, than before it was augmented. If it is supposed to be augmented one-tenth, the value of every part, that of an ounce, for example, must be diminished one-tenth. In whatever degree, therefore, the quantity of money is increased or diminished, other things remaining the same, in the same proportion, the value of the whole, and of every part, is reciprocally diminished or increased. This, it is evident, is a proposition universally true. Whenever the value of money has either risen or fallen, the quantity of goods against which it is exchanged and the rapidity of circulation remaining the same, the change must be owing to a corresponding diminution or increase of the quantity, 
and can be owing to nothing else. If the quantity of goods diminish while the quantity of money remains the same, it is the same thing as if the quantity of money had been increased. End quote. And vice versa. Quote, Similar changes are produced by an alteration in the rapidity of circulation. An increase in the number of these purchases has the same effect as an increase in the quantity of money, a diminution the reverse. If there is any portion of the annual produce which is not exchanged at all, as is consumed by the producer, or which is not exchanged for money, that is not taken into account because what is not exchanged for money is in the same state with respect to the money as if it did not exist. Whenever the coining of money is free, its quantity is regulated by the value of the metal. Gold and silver are in reality commodities. It is cost of production which determines the value of these as of other ordinary productions. End of quote. Footnote. James Mill, Elements of Political Economy, London, 1821, page 95 to 110, Passam, translation. End of footnote. The whole wisdom of Mill resolves itself into a series of arbitrary and absurd assumptions. He wishes to prove that the price of commodities or the value of money is determined by, quote, the total quantity of money in any country, end quote. Assuming that the quantity and the exchange value of the commodities in circulation remain unchanged and that the same be true of the rapidity of circulation and of the value of precious metals as determined by the cost of production, and assuming at the same time that the quantity of the metallic currency increases or decreases in proportion to the quantity of money existing in a country, it becomes really evident that what was to have been proven has been assumed. Mill falls, moreover, into the same error as Hume by assuming that use values and not commodities with a given exchange value are in circulation, and that vitiates his statement, even if we grant him all of his assumptions. The rapidity of circulation may remain the same. This may also be true of the value of the precious metals and of the quantity of the commodities in circulation, and yet a change in the exchange value of the latter may require now a larger and now a smaller quantity of money for their circulation. Mill sees that part of the money in a country in its circulation, while another is idle. With the aid of a most absurd average calculation, he assumes that, although it really appears to be different, yet all the gold in a country does circulate. Assuming that 10 million silver thalers circulate in a country twice a year, there could be 20 million such coins in circulation, if each circulated but once. And if the entire quantity of silver to be found in a country in any form amounts to 100 million thalers, it may be supposed that the entire 100 million can enter circulation, if each piece of money should circulate once in five years. One could as well assume that all the money of the world circulate in Hempstead, but that each piece of money, instead of being employed three times a year, is employed once in three million years. The one assumption is as relevant as the other for the purpose of determining the relation between the sum total of prices of commodities and the volume of currency. Mill feels that it is a matter of decisive importance to him to bring the commodities in direct contact not with the money in circulation, but with the entire supply of money existing in a country. He admits that, quote, the whole of the goods of a country are not exchanged at once against the whole of the money, end quote, but that the goods are exchanged in different portions and at different times of the year for different portions of money. To do away with this difficulty, he assumes that it does not exist. 
Moreover, this entire idea of direct contact of commodities and money and direct exchange is a mere abstraction from the movement of simple purchase and sale or the function of money as a means of purchase. Already in the movement of money as a means of payment, commodity and money cease to appear simultaneously. The commercial crises of the 19th century, namely the great crises of 1825 and 1836, did not result in any new developments in the Ricardian theory of money, but they did furnish new applications for it. They were no longer isolated economic phenomena such as the depreciation of the precious metals in the 16th and 17th centuries which interested Hume or the depreciation of paper money in the 18th and early 19th centuries which confronted Ricardo. They were the great storms of the world market in which the conflict of all the elements of the capitalist process of production discharged themselves and whose origin and remedy were sought in the most superficial and abstract sphere of this process the sphere of money circulation the theoretical assumption from which the school of economic weather profits proceeds comes down in the end to the illusion that ricardo discovered the laws governing the circulation of purely metallic currency the only thing that remained for them to do was to subject to the same laws the circulation of credit and banknote currency the most general and most palpable phenomenon in commercial crises is the sudden general decline of prices following a prolonged general rise. The general decline of prices of commodities may be expressed as a rise in the relative value of money with respect to all commodities, and the general rise of prices as a decline of the relative value of money. In either expression the phenomenon is described but not explained. Whether I put the question thus, explain the general periodic rise of prices followed by a general decline of the same or formulate the same problem by saying explain the periodic decline and rise of the relative value of money with respect to commodities the different wording leaves the problem as little changed as would its translation from german into english Ricardo's theory of money was exceedingly convenient, because it lends a tautology the semblance of a statement of casual connection Whence comes the periodic general fall of prices? From the periodic rise to the relative value of money. Whence the general periodic rise of prices? From the periodic decline of the relative value of money. It might have been stated with equal truth that the periodic rise and fall of prices is due to their periodic rise and fall. The problem itself is stated under the assumption that the intrinsic value of money that is, its value as determined by the cost of production of precious metals, remains unchanged. If it is more than a tautology, then it is based on a misconception of the most elementary principles. If the exchange value of A, measured in terms of B, declines, we know that this may be caused by a decline of the value of A as much as by a rise of the value of B. The same being true of the case of a rise of the exchange value of A measured in terms of B. The tautology once admitted as a statement of cause, the rest follows easily. A rise of prices of commodities is caused by a decline of the value of money, and a decline of the value of money is caused, as we know from Ricardo, by a redundant currency, that is, by a rise of the volume of currency over the level determined by its own intrinsic value and the intrinsic value of the commodities. In the same manner, the general decline of prices of commodities is explained by the rise of the value of money above its intrinsic value in consequence of an inadequate currency. 
Thus, prices rise and fall periodically, because there is periodically too much or too little money in circulation. Should a rise of prices happen to coincide with a contracted currency and a fall of prices with an expanded one, it may be asserted in spite of those facts that in consequence of a contraction or expansion of the volume of commodities in the market, which cannot be proven statistically, the quantity of money in circulation has, although not absolutely, yet relatively increased or declined. We have seen that according to Ricardo, these universal fluctuations must take place even with a purely metallic currency, but that they balance each other through their alternations. Thus, for example, an inadequate currency causes a fall of prices. The fall of prices leads to the export of commodities abroad. This export causes again an import of gold from abroad, which, in its turn, brings about a rise of prices. The opposite movement taking place in case of a redundant currency when commodities are imported and money is exported. But since in spite of these universal fluctuations of prices, which are in perfect accord with Ricardo's theory of metallic currency, their acute and violent form, their crisis form, belongs in the period of advanced credit, it is perfectly clear that the issue of banknotes is not exactly regulated by the laws of metallic currency. Metallic currency has its remedy in the import and export of precious metals, which immediately enter circulation, and thus, by their influx or efflux, cause the prices of commodities to fall or rise. The same effect on prices must now be exerted by banks by the artificial imitation of the laws of metallic currency. If gold is coming in from abroad, it proves that the currency is inadequate that the value of money is too high and the prices of commodities too low, and, consequently, that banknotes must be put in circulation in proportion to the newly imported gold. On the contrary, notes have to be withdrawn from circulation in proportion to the export of gold from the country. That is to say, the issue of banknotes must be regulated by the import and export of the precious metals or by the rate of exchange. Ricardo's false assumption that gold is only coin, and that therefore all imported gold swells the currency, causes prices to rise, while all exported gold reduces the currency leading to a fall of prices. This theoretical assumption is turned into a practical experiment of putting in every case an amount of currency in circulation equal to the amount of gold in existence. Lord Overstone, the banker Jones Lloyd, Colonel Torrens, Norman, Clay, Arbuthnot, and a host of other writers, known in England as the adherents of the currency principle, not only preached this doctrine, but, with the aid of Sir Robert Peel, succeeded in 1844 and 1845 in making it the basis of the present English and Scotch bank legislation. Its ignominious failure, theoretical as well as practical, following upon experiments on the largest national scale, can be treated only after we take up the theory of credit. Footnote. A few months before the outbreak of the commercial crisis of 1857, a committee of the House of Commons was in session to inquire into the effect of the bank laws of 1844 and 1845. Lord Overstone, the theoretical father of these laws, delivered himself of this boast in his testimony before the committee. Quote, by strict and prompt adherence to the principles of the Act of 1844, everything has passed off with regularity and ease. The monetary system is safe and unshaken. The prosperity of the country is undisputed. 
the public confidence in the wisdom of the Act of 1844 is daily gaining strength, and if the committee wish for further practical illustration of the soundness of the principles on which it rests, or of the beneficial results which it has assured, the true and sufficient answer to the committee is, look around you. Look at the present state of trade of the country. Look at the contentment of the people. Look at the wealth and prosperity which pervades every class of the community. And then, having done so, the committee may be fairly called upon to decide whether they will interfere with the continuance of an act under which these results have been developed. End quote. Thus did Overstone blow his own horn on the 14th of July, 1857. On the 12th of November of the same year, the ministry had to suspend on its own responsibility the wonderful law of 1844. End of footnote. So much can be seen, however, that the theory of Ricardo, which isolates money in its fluent form of currency, ends by ascribing to the ebbs and tides in the supply of precious metals an influence on bourgeois economy, such as the believers in the superstitions of the monetary system had never dreamt of. Thus Ricardo, who proclaimed paper currency as the most perfect form of money, become the prophet of the bullionists. After Hume's theory, or the abstract opposition to the monetary system was thus developed to its ultimate conclusions, Stuart's concrete conception of money was finally restored to its rights by Thomas Took. Footnote. Took was entirely ignorant of Stuart's work, as may be seen from his History of Prices for 1839-1847, to London, 1848, where he reviews the history of the theories of money. End footnote. Took arrives at his principles not from any theory, but by a conscientious analysis of the history of prices of commodities from 1793 to 1856. In the first edition of his History of Prices, which appeared in 1823, Took is still under the complete influence of the Ricardian theory and vainly tries to reconcile it with actual facts. His pamphlet on the currency, which appeared after the crisis of 1825, might even be considered as the first consistent presentation of the views which were later given the force of law by Overstone. Continued studies in the history of prices forced him, however, to the conclusion that the direct connection between prices and the volume of currency, as it is pictured by the theory, is a mere illusion. That the expansion and contraction of currency which takes place while the value of the precious metals remains unchanged, is always the effect, but never the cause, of price fluctuations, that the circulation of money is in any event but a secondary movement, and that money assumes quite different forms in the actual process of production in addition to that of a circulating medium. His detailed investigations belong to a sphere outside of that of simple metallic circulation, and can be discussed here as little as the investigations of Wilson and Fullerton, which belong to the same class. Footnote. Took's most important work besides The History of Prices, which his co-worker Newmarch published in six volumes, is An Inquiry into the Currency Principle, The Connections of the Currency with Prices, etc. Second edition, London, 1844. Wilson's book we have already quoted. Finally, there is to be mentioned John Fullerton's On the Regulation of Currency, 2nd edition, London, 1845. End of footnote. None of these writers takes a one-sided view of money, but treat it in its various aspects. The treatment, however, is mechanical. Without an attempt to establish an organic connection either between these various aspects themselves or between them and the combined system of economic categories. 
They fall, therefore, into the error of confusing money as distinguished from medium of circulation with capital, or even with commodity, although they are forced elsewhere to differentiate it from both. Footnote. Quote, we ought to distinguish between gold as merchandise, that is, as capital, and gold as currency. End quote. Took, an inquiry into the currency principle, etc., page 10. Quote, gold and silver may be counted upon to realize, on their arrival, nearly the exact sum required to be provided. Gold and silver possess an infinite advantage over all other description of merchandise. From the circumstance of being universally in use as money, it is not in tea, coffee, sugar, or indigo that debts, whether foreign or domestic, are usually contracted to be paid, but in coin, and the remittance, therefore, either in the identical coin designated or in bullion, which can be promptly turned into that coin through the mint or market of the country to which it is sent, must always afford to the remitter the most certain, immediate, and accurate means of effecting this object, without risk of disappointment from the failure of demand or fluctuation of price. End quote. Fullerton. L.C., page 132-133. to 133. Quote, Any other article except gold or silver might in quantity or kind be beyond the usual demand of the country to which it is sent. End quote. Took, an inquiry, etc. End of footnote. When gold, for example, is shipped abroad, it practically means that capital is sent abroad. But the same thing takes place when iron, cotton, grain, or any other commodity is exported. Both are capital, and are distinguished not as capital, but as money and commodity. The function of gold as the international medium of exchange springs, therefore, not from its being capital, but from its specific character of money. Similarly, when gold or banknotes in its place circulate in the home trade as means of payment, they constitute capital at the same time. But they could not be replaced by capital in the form of commodities, as has been demonstrated very palpably by crises, for instance. That is to say, it is the fact that gold is distinguished from commodities in its capacity of money and not in that of capital. That makes it the means of payment. Even when capital is exported directly as capital, as, for example, when it is done for the purpose of lending abroad a certain amount on interest, it depends on circumstances, whether it will be exported in the form of commodities or in that of gold. And if in the latter form, it is due to the specific designation of the precious metals as distinguished from commodities to serve as money. In general, these writers do not consider money in its abstract form as it is developed within the sphere of simple circulation of commodities, and as it spontaneously grows out of the relation of the circulating commodities. As a result, they constantly vacillate between the abstract forms of money which distinguish it from commodity and those forms of it beneath which are concealed concrete relations such as capital, revenue, etc. Footnote. The transformation of money into capital we shall consider in the third chapter, which treats of capital and forms the end of the first book. End of footnote. End of chapter 2, section C, part 2. Recording by Traven Leroy, Ottawa, Canada.